Now, going back to that uh, technical question I just asked, uh, I'm curious, who here are my technical savvy people in the room? So something goes wrong with a computer, and you've got like this diagnostic list of 15 things you know to do. Now, there's the other end of the spectrum, too, isn't there? There's the people that don't even know what I meant when I said diagnostic list. And um, I generally fall within that category. I look at computers as a giant box of mysteries. Somehow this magical device does things that helps me out, and I appreciate that. But then there's that big headache of when the computer stops working. And you have no idea what you're supposed to do at this point. So you call technical support. I've got to tell you, whenever I call technical support, I generally feel like a total fool. I spend 45 minutes waiting to uh, physically speak to someone. And once I finally hear a human voice at the other end of the phone, they ask something like, what's the nature of your problem? And I respond, I don't know. My computer developed artificial intelligence and, and it's initiated this meltdown process. I don't know what to do about it. So the attendant just kind of sighs. You ever have them sigh at you like you're the biggest doofus in the world? That they've heard this problem every day, 10,000 times per day, and then they ask you, uh, the question that makes you feel like a total numbskull. Well, have you turned it on and off yet? What do you mean, turn it on and off yet? No. Hold on a minute. What is that going to do? And then I turn my computer on and off, and of course, the crazy thing starts working. It's the most common answer to our computing woes. When your computer or phone is acting up, try turning it on and off again. In the computing world, they call it a reboot. Why do customers need, or computers need to be rebooted? Sometimes customers do too, though, right? <laughs> Sometimes your computer's operating system can kind of get bogged down. You see, the operating system does all kinds of things that I don't quite understand, but a lot. And it's operating different tasks and functions within your computer. And so you start things up systematically, and over the course of time, uh, it's just given too many tasks in sequence, and it can't keep up with them, or it gets a little confused. It's kind of probably like what would happen to you or me if someone showed up to our door and they were knocking on the door, and simultaneously while that was happening, the washer machine blows up and the dog uses the bathroom on the entryway carpet. You'd be like, what do I do right now? And so a computer gets to a point where the best thing to do is to start from scratch, a reboot. Removes all of those tasks, and it gives the computer a, a, a fresh start, a, a clean slate. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think, doesn't this happen in our lives too? We get over-involved in things. We make plans. We start putting them into the motion. I'm going to have church activities. I'm going to maintain exercise goals. I'm going to crush it at work. I've got this ideal vacation that I'm setting up and make sure that I maintain an interesting hobby. And if you got kids, well, you got to raise kids who are simultaneously on the honor roll, second degree black belts, play cello like Yo-Yo Ma, and of course are the captain of their preferred sport. I mean, boy, it sounds like you've got a lot going on. Wouldn't it be nice to have a reboot, to shut it all down and to start with a clean slate? And I've got to say, those poor kids could probably use a reboot too. 
I've always found January to be a great time to shut things down, to reconsider priorities, and to ask meaningful questions of them. Now, I know that you're thinking, oh, here we go again, a New Year's resolution, uh, inspirational moment. I bought that Bowflex Max trainer for $1,500 last year, and now it's just a glorified clothes hanger. Well, that's not what I'm getting at. Because I don't find that New Year's resolutions tend to work. Uh, in fact, David DeSteno, writing for the New York Times, would agree. He noted in his article, The Only Way to Keep Your Resolutions, that by January 8th, about 25% of those resolutions are out the window. And here we are on the 7th. He says that by the end of the year, less than 1 in 10 of those resolutions would be kept by any American. So they don't work, do they? They don't really help us. There's this vicious cycle of making a resolution, failing, and then coming back the next year making it and failing. And it's built upon a faulty premise. The premise goes something like this. If I just change these uh, four or five things about myself, then I'll be good enough. If I'm in better shape, then I'll be more attractive. If I read more books, then I'll be smarter and more interesting. There's this ideal person that I could be, but I'm not, so I must work hard to earn approval. And I've got to tell you, that's anti-gospel. I mean, that's bad news. You just keep working and perfecting yourself, but then once you've kind of obtained those goals, uh, you realize you're still not good enough, so you go back and you keep trying to work on yourself? What does the gospel say? Well, the gospel begins with bad news, doesn't it? We aren't good enough. I mean, there is absolutely nothing that you or I could do to earn God's approval or to perfect ourselves. But God sent his son Jesus, who was good enough. He lived the life that you couldn't live. He died in your place. You don't need to make a bunch of cosmetic changes or emotional changes to earn God's approval. Paul says in Philippians 3.9 that there's one important thing, and that's to be found in him. Who? Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which depends on faith. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. Now that's good stuff, isn't it? That's good news. So I'm not going to drone on about New Year's resolutions. Indeed, we're going to talk about something totally different. Wisdom. See, wisdom is not a resolution that's here today and then gone tomorrow. The word wisdom in the Old Testament is the word chokmah. It means to live well, to live like God exists, to order my life according to his priorities. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 4.7, Solomon tells us, Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. So let's come back to this idea of rebooting. Maybe one of the big reasons that we need to reboot every year is that we are not aligning our priorities with God's priorities. Have you stopped to consider your life through that lens? What would happen if you go weeks, months, years, a lifetime without walking in wisdom? Well, a lot of things. One thing that happens is stress. 
Jesus told us in Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life. Why are we anxious? Because we've lost our grip on what reality is. You see, wisdom shows us the world as it really is. And how does the Bible describe reality? Like this. God is in control. He perfectly, painstakingly orchestrates time and space and events for his glory and for our good. And if God is in control of everything, then life is not about stressing over those needless things that I'm taking responsibility for but I can't actually control. But rather, it's about pursuing God's will and trusting him with the details of my life. Another thing that could happen is we could get spiritually complacent. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, complacency means to show smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's own achievements. As fallen humans, we tend to cast blame when things aren't going well, and we tend to take credit when they are going well. Uh, That Dow Jones Industrial Average, that thing sure shot up, didn't it? 25 percentage points, S&P 19 percentage point, NADSTAC 28 percentage points in 2018. I mean, that's a big year. I'm imagining that 401ks went up in the room. It's easy to get into the mindset where you say, wow, I'm a brilliant economist. You see where that mind can go? I, I'm a skillful planner. I did this. My money's growing. Now I can be comfortable. And suddenly, we feel less reliant on God. We've grown complacent. He was in the driver's seat. We've subsequently asked him to sit into the back seat, and we've shifted over into the driver's seat. Whoa, that's dangerous. That vehicle's still operating. And you don't know the future. And you're not sovereignly controlling the universe. That's a big deal. Well, worst of all, though, worst of all is that if we don't walk in wisdom, we could waste our lives. You see, wrapped up in this word wisdom is a life well lived. One author tells us wisdom refers to skill in living. One lives life with moral skills so that something of lasting value is produced from one's life. You see, 10,000 years from now, you're still going to exist. 10,000 years from today, six-pack abs won't matter. Huge diversified investment portfolios won't matter. Rising to the top won't matter. Pinterest perfect home won't matter. Magazine cover kids won't matter. Retiring and spending the remainder of my days baking on a beach somewhere won't matter. So what will? Did you walk in wisdom? That's why Solomon says to his sons, drop everything you're doing to get it. Don't spin your wheels chasing reputation and capital and hedonistic pleasure and all those things that you're told to chase. Drop all of those things and organize your priorities to center on God's priorities. He's essentially telling us to do a reboot, to realign everything and make God the center of our organizing principle. How do we do that? Well, wisdom involves taking a critical look at our lives. 
See, we're planning creatures. We like to scheme and determine and project and analyze, and then we pursue what we believe is going to lead to the best sort of life possible. But God's word has some wisdom for us when it comes to restarting the operating system. So we're going to go to his book of wisdom and hear a couple of principles from it. Uh, The first would be from Proverbs 16.2. This is God's book of wisdom, isn't it? Tons of helpful proverbs from one of the wisest men who ever lived, King Solomon, for us. What does he say? All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. You see, the first principle is that God ultimately determines what is right for our lives. The word spirit can be translated as motives. So this is getting down to the why do I do what I do level. Our tendency as sinful humans is to deceive ourselves. We're altruistic when it comes to why we do what we do. We're realistic or maybe even a little skeptical when we evaluate the motives of others. But God doesn't get distracted by the confusion. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on in the inner world. And that's what's going to matter to him at the end of the day. Well, how do I make sure that my life is aligned with the right motives, the right priorities? Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So the second principle is this, when our lives are aligned with God's truth, we flourish. Isn't that what we all want? We want to flourish in this world. So aligning every area of your life with God's revealed truth is the most powerful thing that you can do. It's that surefire plan to avoid things like stress and anxiety, complacency, and wasting our lives. So I thought it would be important for us to maybe take a critical look at a couple of areas where people tend to need to do this reboot thing. Um, And as we consider these things, we'll consider some of God's truth and ask ourselves the question, Do my plans align with God's will for this area? Let's begin with money. How am I with my money? Maybe 2018 is the year that you need to reconsider your view. You see, money is a big issue. It affects us in many ways. We stress over it, obsess over it, we fight over it. The American Psychological Association notes that financial concerns are among the most common sources of disagreements with couples. According to one of their stress surveys, 31% of adults with partners fight regularly over money. And I think that that statistic's probably low. So why do so many people stress over money? I mean, does it have a mind of its own? It passes through the hands and we make decisions on where it should go and why it should go there. So why are we stressing over money? Well, I think it's because we believe that money can do things that it can't do. We believe it can bring the right kind of friendships. We believe it can guarantee a better life for our children. We believe it can make us happy. We believe it can make us comfortable. We believe that it can make us safe. But I'm here to tell you today, and God's word tells us, that money can't do any of those things. I mean, can money add a single second to our life if God says it's time to come home? Can money make someone really love you? 
Money can get you to nice places, but no amount of money can put joy into the human heart as we experience those nice places. The problem is that we expect money to do what it can't. It's merely a resource. It can't guarantee the good life. We're stressed because we're pursuing a faulty program and it's caused our operating system, our life, to get completely out of control. So how should we change our approach? Well, I think there's a lot of principles about money, but I just want to share two important ones with you from the scriptures. Uh, The most important principle of it all is when you say, how am I with my money? Well, you're already starting off in the wrong foot because God owns it all. It's his. Uh, Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So when it comes to the act of using money, but I'm going to specifically hone in now on giving to the Lord's work, you're not taking some money that, are, that is your money and, and then enriching God in some way, as if God needed a single dime from any one of us. He reminds us in Psalm 50 that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. So then why does God desire that I would give? Well, Jesus explains this in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And God's deeply concerned about your heart. Coming back to Proverbs 16.2 where Solomon was talking about those motives. Have you ever tested your motives with money. I think a good place to test them is at the budget. (laughs) Where are your priorities? If it comes between Netflix and tithing, who wins? Is there a line item on your budget called tithing? If it is on there, is it at the top, the middle, the bottom? Listen, some of you think when a preacher starts talking about money that the church doors need painted or something like that, you know? I don't care if you give a single dollar to the church. Not for those reasons. You know, if, if we were to never take in another dollar and the church budget shrank down to zero, I'd be out of job, but my life wouldn't be over, and I'm sure I would crush it at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> what I care about, what am I interested in, is your heart. And the heart manifests itself towards God by obeying him and by giving him our best. That's so important. One author rightly notes that Jesus said more about money than about any other single issue because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is the exact index to true character. All through scripture, there's an intimate correlation between the development of character and how we handle money. But you know, there's this really beautiful truth that the Bible tells us about money. When we get right with money, when we understand that God owns it all, God gives us the ability to enjoy the things that money provides. Isn't that cool? Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 19 and 20, he says this, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. 
God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they have no time to brood over the past. I mean, isn't that odd? We're stressed out about money. Uh, We're trying to obtain it. We can't enjoy it. But then when we get right with God, when we open up that closed hand to him, suddenly we start having the ability to enjoy it. Why? Because God is really what we wanted all along. C.S. Lewis hits the nail on the head. He says, he who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. I love that. God is the true gift. Everything else is just a fringe benefit. But God's the treasure. Let's consider another area through the lens of wisdom. Number two, how I am with, again, my time. I love the lines from Gandalf in The Fellowship of the Ring. If you're a nerd, you'll appreciate this. Frodo tells him he's late, and he replies, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of handle on time? Do you have enough time to do what matters? Why do our lives tend to get out of whack? We're told we must be, do, and have more. You get onto Facebook for 10 minutes and headlines are screaming out at you, tips to do it all, 10 things successful people do, five weeknight meals in 15 minutes or less. Sounds simple. They promise the secrets to this simple, organized, contented life. But it doesn't take long to realize that all their tips just leave us wanting to buy more, do more, and long for more. I mean, the equation that we're being sold here is that life will be full if you just do a little more. But God's word has a different equation. The Bible tells us rather than do all of that, why don't you just focus on godliness? Listen to Paul's advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What is godliness? Well, I want to think of it through the lens of its opposite, ungodliness. Jerry Bridges gives a good working definition Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. So Paul's encouragement is pretty simple. Live your everyday life with concentrated thought about God, his will, his glory, and your dependence on him. Jesus said something very similar. In Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I recently heard a story about Dr. David Jeremiah. Uh, If you don't know who he is, he's a pastor and an author of many books. It was when he was a young man that a businessman had pulled him aside and said, come here, young buck, I'd like to take you out to a, a lunch and talk a little bit about life. So as they get into this conversation, he leads with this rather strange question. David, what is your carrot? Huh? He went on to explain that he was a carrot farmer. 
Now, you might think to yourself, well, big deal, a carrot farmer. Well, it is a big deal when you're the best supplier of carrots in the industry. He told David Jeremiah, I grow the best carrots and the most carrots because the only thing that I think about is carrots. I don't get distracted by what could be done with carrots or growing tomatoes in carrots. I only seek to grow the best carrot in the industry. And you know what? That's what I do. Then he repeated the question. David, what's your carrot? I ask you the same question. Have you felt discombobulated, distracted, unable to accomplish much of anything? Well, Jesus says, let me just make it a little bit simpler for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. That's good stuff, isn't it? All right, let's look at one more. Reboot number three. Am I growing in community? If you were to come up to me and be like, Rob, what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do with my life? I would say this. That's an easy question. It is. He wants you to look like Jesus. Christ-likeness is God's will for your life. Before you make any decision, you need to always ask yourself one simple question. Will this decision help me to look more like Jesus? Now, you might be then asking the question, well, how do I look more like Jesus? What do I need to do? Well, that's a multifaceted question. But I want to focus in on one very important aspect of growing in Christ's likeness, and this has to do with Christian community. Now, many of the New Testament writers use metaphors to communicate this point to us. Paul speaks of a body. He's teaching about the spiritual gifts and he's envisioning us as this body that receives the benefit of, uh, of circulation and mobility as we join together. So you don't get any of those benefits if you're separated. A branch, in John 15, Jesus calls us a branch attached to a vine. Now notice that we're attached to the vine, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also other branches in this vine, and it's with the combined efforts of the branches that they assimilate the the nutrients of the environment to produce fruit. Without being together, we couldn't do that. It's not me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. A building, Paul calls us this, Living stone, or Peter, living stones stacked together in a living structure with Christ as the cornerstone. So our unity being the mortar of the bricks, alone or apart, a stone's just a stone. But stacked together, it serves a greater purpose the purpose of protection, support, safety, shelter. So I hope you see that. Christian community is central to Christian growth. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It will never work. I've never met someone that sits on the bench, never comes to church, never associates with Christians that I have found to be a deep, mature Christian in Christ. Well, why? Well, all of those fruits of the Spirit that look like Christ, well, they involve other people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I need to practice those things with other people. How can I do that by myself? Christian community, if we were going to define it, is this. 
a group of believers who are committed to the common purpose of growing Christ together, serving one another, and reaching the lost. Community, by definition, is us, not me. It's bigger than me. I want you to listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Philippians 2. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others to get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to, to lend a helping hand. I've noticed, and I've grown up in the church my whole life, that there's people that tend to find community, and then there's people who tend not to find community. I want to share a couple of observations that I've seen of those individuals who tend to find community. The first observation is this, is that community finders go where community is happening. I recently heard of a man named Sam who prayed every day to win the New York lottery. And he was made this request of God, God, if I pray every day, would you let me win the lottery before I turn 80? On his 80th birthday, he complained to God, why haven't I won the lottery? I've prayed every single day. Well, God says to him, well, Sam, you gotta help me out a little bit here. Buy a ticket. I mean, some Christians expect to win at community without ever buying a ticket. You need to go where a community is happening. You need to not like come in late to church and leave early. And you, you, you got to put in a little bit of effort. You just can't wait for it or expect it to come to you. I want to suggest that Sunday morning, too, isn't the easiest place for community. I mean, it's hard to get into a deep, meaningful, robust conversation on a Sunday morning. I think that small group Bible studies, thrive groups, are the environments where these types of relationships are fostered around word-centered community. You see, thrive groups are like this, this bigger church in miniature. So in these thrive groups, we pray together, we open up about our lives together, we even do missional projects. I heard of a couple of thrive groups that were doing some missional projects. One Uh, decided that they were going to help out a widow and they just did all of her yard cleanup for the fall. A couple of the Thrive groups uh, found some families in need and they provided Christmas for them. Changed lives what? Changing lives. I can't encourage you enough to sign up for a group. It's one of the best ways to find community. Don't ask for the lottery if you're not willing to buy a ticket. I'm just saying. Another point, community finders are consistent. You see, community takes time to create, it takes effort, it takes consistency. Say, for example, you join a Thrive group. Do you think that you're going to get meaningful community if you show up four times out of 12? Probably not. And think about this. I believe that other people are coming to that Thrive group to find community through you. 
So it's very important that we're consistent, isn't it? I, I find that community finders show up week after week. They understand that, yes, things come up, and, and they're not like a ball and chain to this. They're communicative with people, but they know that if they, they're, they're present, if they're there, that community is going to happen. Third thing, community finders are also community creators. How do you create community? All kinds of ways. I think there's two important that I'd like to surface, though. Community creators foster grace. It's the key to community creation. Judgmentalism, superficiality, those are community destroyers. I don't care if you don't know the Bible as well as I do. I'm just glad you're here. I love talking about the Patriots, but let's get past that. As my good friend Jeremy Anderson, a.k.a. Ragnar, said, there's more important things than the Patriots. Now put your stones down. This is from the Bible, okay? People need space to ask questions, to confess sin, to explore what the Bible says, and yes, to have questions answered. And grace will allow for these things. It'll build up the community. Also, community creators invite people deeper into community. You see, a community creator goes up to someone and says, hey, I'm a part of this Thrive Group community, and I would love it if you would join in that with me. There's some great Christians here. We're growing in the word in the book of James. Let's get together and study it. They aren't waiting to be served. They're looking outward, and they're asking the question, who can I serve? And as a result... This is how it works, doesn't it? They find lots and lots and lots of community. When you're waiting for community to come to you, it tends not to come to you. When you're out there making community happen, you tend to find community. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? So these are the three reboot ideas that I'm looking at, and I'm sure there's more. As we close, I want to leave you with one last thought. How are you going to stay on track so that you don't need to reboot next January? It would be a shame, wouldn't it, if 2019, 2020, 2021 was just a a repeat of the vicious cycle. Now, I've started off 2018 with my reading plan, and one of the first books that I picked up was a book by a guy named Jeff Olson. He's a business-type guy called The Slight Edge. And one of the things that I picked up from this book was this chart that he had in there. You see, there's three lines on this chart. We'll put that up on the screen. You can see them there. There's failure, there's survival, and there's success. Now, I think of that success line as thriving. There's a pun intended there. He notes that people tend to ride a roller coaster. You'll see there at the front end of that spectrum, this, this uh, what he calls sine wave of mediocrity, where we're just cresting between failure and survival. We're going back and forth. What prevents us from this mediocrity? Or what causes it? Well, we stop doing the things that we knew were good for us, is essentially what he says. I imagine that most of what I said to you this morning wasn't earth-shattering. I praise God if it was, but I doubt it was. What does this mean? It means you know what to do already to live well. You don't need a slew of New Year's resolutions to live well. You just need to do the things that God says are wise and keep doing them. 
That's the secret of the life well lived. If you were to drop into the life of an everyday, ordinary missionary that people looked at and said, this person's a hero, this person was great. I imagine if you dropped in on the world of Amy Carmichael, you probably wouldn't think, wow, there's magic in the air. She's just in a league all her own. I think, in fact, you would probably drop in and you'd say, this is rather mundane. I don't get it. What does she have that I don't? Well, when we consider her life an exemplary life, she didn't have anything you don't. She just pursued the right things and kept doing it. So that's our, my prayer for us this year. That we would just keep pursuing the right things. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?